Welcome to the Worship Central Podcast. We are passionate to see the worship and creativity of churches throughout the world set on fire. Join us as we explore what this might look like. Hello, welcome back hey. to Worship Central Podcast. Woo. Happy January New Year, 2020. Happy New 2020. Year. 2020. Happy yeah. New Year. Loving it. Um, Loving so um, every episode we have um, a live chat where we dig into a topic, maybe something that we think um, every worship leader, worship team should be thinking through. Uh, so Reverend Dr. Drake's going to be bringing that today. Glory. Uh, we've got a, a great uh, song that we want to feature, we want to present to you guys. Yeah, um, okay. Hosanna? Yes, it's going to be fantastic. Blessed is he. <laughs> wow. It does sound better than that, let me assure you. Uh, and then we've got a, a great guest interview with Julian Adams, who's an mm. um, amazing guy, prophetic. Uh, going to be quizzing him on what he's seeing in the church around the world, the prophetic worship. Uh, it's going to be amazing. And then um, we've got Herbs bringing the bridge. Take it to the bridge. So let's go straight in. Here we go. So for this episode's live chat, the year is 2020, as we know. And uh, one of the things that 2020 represents is also the idea of perfect vision. And so we thought it'd be really interesting to look at Jesus at the start of this new year and how and challenge and encourage ourselves um, how we can see Jesus more widely like is there any way we're limiting our view of who Jesus is mm. and how that impacts our worship and our preparation of worship for our churches um, in in tradition churches often swing between emphasizing the humanity of Jesus like him being very much like us in every way tempted just like us uh, and then the divinity of Jesus how he is fully God um, and so on the fully God aspect I want to kind of focus a bit on that today because one of the things that hit us we just did a, a series called this is jesus at the end of 2019 looking at john's gospel one of the stories uh that is one of my favorites is jesus walking on the water but what's interesting in john chapter 6 in john's version of the story is that what the disciples are frightened of when they're in the boat is not the storm they're in mm. but in john's version what they're frightened about is jesus mm walking mm. towards them mm. on the water. And, and when you pause and really let that sink in, that, that's quite significant. And I think, I think it says something about up to this point, they've seen Jesus, okay, they've seen him do amazing miracles, but you know we've got to remember that most of the people have concluded just before this chapter, the end of the feeding of 5,000, that Jesus was a prophet, i.e., uh, someone who you know operated on behalf of God, spoke on behalf of God, did th did things uh, prophetically. But suddenly, here he is walking on top of chaos, walking on top of the, one of the greatest powers in the world that the water represents uh, for the Jews. And so, I think there's this aspect of the divinity of Jesus hitting the disciples at this point. Mm. And if we think back to the Old Testament, uh, you have this this idea constantly, of course, of the holiness of God, i.e. the, the the fear of the Lord, that he is totally other than us. And so even, you know, when he reveals himself, say, to Moses in the burning bush, um, one of the very first things he says to Moses is, wait, don't come too close. Take your mm. sandals off because you're on holy ground. Mm. And, and literally there's this idea of if if we see God, we we will die because he's so frightening. He's so wholly yeah. other. And... So there's this aspect all the way through um, the Old Testament, this tension between the holy otherness of the divinity of God um, and yet his desire to be close and have intimacy with us. Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, talked about it as veiling and unveiling, that even as God unveils himself in Christ, he remains in some way veiled, mm -hmm. i.e. holy uh other than us, one, one who, who prunes us, mm. one who will bring judgment still. Um, and I think that's a useful concept uh, to, to think about. One of the other um, angles on this that I love, I think, is 
one of the theories of what Jesus does at the cross, which is uh, one of the atonement theories um, in slang. It's called the fish hook theory. <laughs> and uh, it's this idea found in some of the early church fathers uh, like Gregory of Nyssa, um, but it's also found in Men in Black 1 uh, with Edgar the Bug, if you're familiar <laughs> with that scene. Um, and, and I love this idea personally. Um, and I think it's re- it really speaks to me, this idea that Jesus, uh, that God baits uh, the enemy mm. by by offering Jesus like 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 a worm on on the hook for the fish to come and take, and then the enemy comes at the cross and devours Jesus on the cross, but then Jesus doesn't realize the enemy doesn't realize that Jesus is so so much more than he thought, and Jesus in his full divinity explodes the enemy from the inside out um, like. Um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones explodes Edgar the Bug in Men in Black. Go and watch it. <laughs> uh, and so there's this there's this wonderful idea. And of course, Jesus references this. He says, you know, uh, he he says, I, I am one like Jonah. And there's this idea of going inside mm. the fish. And it, uh, you know, and and here on the cross, this divinity, uh, this frighteningness of Jesus explodes mm. the enemy, all that comes against us uh, in in victory. So to kind of come into land, I think there's something really interesting really deep uh, that often especially in contemporary worship we can lean towards i think how jesus is like us how he's our friend mm, yeah. intimacy yeah. as a value leads us a bit more towards that and yet we have to remember this whole holy otherness this divinity mm. aspect the glory of christ mm. uh, the one who explodes death from the inside who is far more than we can um, get our heads around. And, and I think ha- we can strive towards, in 2020, this greater vision of mm. who he is. Great. That's great. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've noticed traveling a bit globally the last few months is it seems that there's a real movement around repentance. Mm. Um, right. Lots of meetings have been in people getting on their knees, literally bawling their mm. eyes out, yeah. aware wow. of their fallenness wow. and aware of just, I guess, misconceptions of who God is, reducing him to, you know, a mate. <laughs> um, and I think, again, that's a really exciting thing. So I wonder with our song selections, how are we creating space for us uh, to communicate the reality of who we are and the life yeah. of who God is? Yeah. And and that, that even that theme of repentance, because I think that's, um, you see a lot of people when they see Jesus, you know, they fall to their knees. There's mm. a, I'm not worthy. I think of Isaiah, these pictures. And, and I think there's something uh, God is doing in just opening our eyes to, oh, this is who you are. Yeah. And I'm so not worthy. Um, mm. And that, that posture of bowing down, um, I'd love to see us engage more perhaps with some of that theme in mm. our worship and yeah. our songs. Yeah. Do you think, um, going back to like the overall um, theme and, and what you're posing, Nick, do you think it's um, for worship leaders, you know, maybe listening to this, coming up to a, another Sunday set list, is it just about or as simple as thinking through dynamic and balance of of making sure we've got both kind of in both camps, both category? Is it, mean, sorry, but, but in well, some you know, sex, you mean yeah, in, yeah, yeah, the humanity in, so, and the divinity yeah, aspect? Exactly, the, yeah. Yeah, I, I think generally one of the things to push into in song selection and in writing is is more the divinity, is mm. the ascended, the ascended Christ, like the reigning Christ, you know. But but also, you know, about Becky and I, we write all age songs, songs mm. for children. One of the songs we wrote a long time ago was "We Want to Be Like Jesus." We want to do what Jesus would do. And in the verses, we're all on the humanity, mm. and people were coming up saying, "Oh, I wish we had an ad, adult inverted commas song." like that, you know, rather than a kid's song as well, because it was so refreshing just saying, well, he did this and he did this and we should be like that too, you know? And I think that's quite hard to write well as well. Mm. And and how can we write songs that just simply say about his character and what Mm. he was like? Mm. And so I think in both, both camps, you need songs to resource both angles on Jesus. I think where there's an important thing is also our approach in leading worship. Mm. I think when you lead regularly in a church, it's hard not to become very casual. You know, you wake up Sunday, here we go again, get through the set list, you know, the songs. Oh, Tim. You might be like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> confession time. Um, Is that why you haven't led for a while? <laughs> but actually, do, do, do we expect 
to yeah. lead worship and get to a place where the whole congregation are face down in fear. Yeah. You know, think yeah. about, you know, Solomon's dedication to the temple and the yeah. cloud fill and, the, you know, all the priests, musicians, they're on yeah. their knees. They don't know what to do. They're over, overwhelmed. Are we leading and preparing to lead expecting those moments or is our focus still very much on when we're going to do this new song, you know, surrounded and find out whatever the big new song of the moment is. I wonder if we, we engage much more in some of those practicalities. Oh, you know, we're going to introduce the new Hillsong song. Can't wait. Rather than the God of heaven yeah. and mm. earth is here with us. And if mm. he begins to unveil something of who he is, oh my goodness, this is going to be a radical transformation for people. And if we start thinking like that, we're going to pray differently with the team. We're going to inspire them. We're going to um, yeah. just lead differently. So I, I think even more than song selection, there's something in us mm. of maintaining a healthy sense yeah. of expectancy yeah, that's great. this is who we worship but I, and yeah. I would also say I think one of the things that we've tried to work on hard here is actually joining the dots on that it's it's not just the worship leader it's it's the host of the gathering yeah. or the service it's the person who sets it up yeah um how do we do that in our preaching I know you guys have, have talked a lot about that um like in every moment are we are we drawing the church into an invitation of look what we're about to do is not just go through the motions for an hour and a half. I mean, you know, I've, I've felt this kind of righteous anger in me recently when I've been leading worship and, and someone's on the front row sort of with a coffee in their hand. Mm, I'm like, yeah. hey, that is not the posture to get ready to lift your hand Luke, and worship. Luke, I did say to talk to me about this in <laughs> private, not, on, right. not in a public. It was a vanilla latte <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> your gingerbread latte. Who, who drinks vanilla lattes? <laughs> Lol. Um, but no, and, and obviously everyone's in a different place and we, and we know that and you never judge a, a book by its cover. God looks the heart, all that, da, da, da. Um, but I think there is something about what you're saying, Tim, calling the church into this holy expectation of what the Lord is going to do as he walks amongst us. Mm. And, um, and I think as worship leaders, we definitely, even in the way that we lead with passion, with zeal, with fire, um, you know, if, if, if we're not passionate about what we're doing, then you know, we really have to call into question, are we the right person to get up and, and front this thing, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, I think unless you're on fire as a worship leader um, with this stuff and you've caught a glimpse again of the majestic nature of God, the divinity of Christ, um, then might as well call it a day, eh? Okay, confession time from me, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Now you know, we're getting good. I love good. all go. this content, like unbelievable, yeah, you know, yeah, you... But. <laughs> <laughs> Come in with expectation, prepare as a worship leader. You've got your songs. You're speaking about the otherness of God. You're expecting, you've got space in your set for the kind of, I don't know what God might want to do for holiness. You're like, you've got the whole team prepped. And then, like you've just said, people come in and they get their coffee and it's 9.30 in the morning and they're a little bit tired and they're stood there, like you say, with their coffee cup staring at you whilst we're singing about this yeah. unbelievable yeah. holy god you know we had this guy come speak at our church recently he lives in african you know like there's death threats over his life so if if jesus isn't real yeah. in that then then he's dead yeah. he's literally a dead man mm. and then for us you know we're we're just we're so comfortable you know and you kind of spoken to this whole thing of we're comfortable and like the curse of comfortability and so i for me i i find you know, if, if I was leading in another context where like you're, you're a dead man, if Jesus doesn't turn up, would we have to work so hard in our worship leading of like trying to take people on the journey and make sure there's a really good flow and like, you know, the push and pull yeah. moments of, of leading worship. And, and so how much of it is culture and how much of it is down to us? And can we cross over, et cetera, et cetera? I think, I think that where you're at that, I in many ways massively agree. Because if you look at the persecuted church, yeah, one of the hallmarks of the persecuted church is passionate prayer. Mm. Yeah. An incredible sense of intimacy with God. Like this preacher is at our church, you know, following Jesus literally could cost his life. But he, he said there was an intimacy with God he experienced there mm. Yeah. That he's finding difficult. He's living in the UK now and everything's so much more comfortable and you you know, you've Netflix and shopping and 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 I, I think when when literally following God could cost you everything. Yeah. 
it totally changes the way you worship mm. yeah. and the way you pray. And it's hard because in many ways we're so blessed with everything we have in yeah, the West. It's exactly. not like, but how it can blunt that passion in our hearts. And how do we marry this informal style church, which we very much have. Everyone yeah. come. We know on a Sunday, loads of people, brand new, yep. never been to church before. Yeah. So we want to make it informal and fun yeah. with this. If you see God, it changes everything. Yeah, exactly. What do you think, Mr. Latte on, tell man? Us. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, one of the, I think one of the, at the heart of our relationship with God is dependency. And this word dependency, I think is key. It's, it's key for being filled with the spirit and life of the spirit is key for humility. Jesus is dependent on the father to be obedient. Mm. Um, and I think comfort numbs yeah. the yeah. sense of dependency. And so yeah. when you, you know, you're talking about being out of our culture and being in a more hot mission kind of culture, uh, of persecution and stuff that that makes you really dependent mm. and so worship and prayer are some of the key conduits of our dependency and expressing our dependency and receiving strength from the lord mm. yeah and so i guess that's that's the heart of it to me is like how how do we maintain um a sense of of weakness and dependence on god in a culture that so wants to numb pain with comfort well, can you do it? That, I suppose that's my question. In the UK, yeah, we are so wealthy. We're mm. so comfortable. And so, like, is that down to each individual or can you lead people in there, into that place? We see, I often get asked, what is the one of the key characteristics or attributes of a worship leader? And I've thought about that for many years. I actually think at the moment, my answer would be the greatest thing a worship leader can bring is hunger for Jesus. Mm. And I think in my yeah. my own life, I, I feel like I'm continuing to grow as a worship leader, I hope anyway. Um, but I, I feel like one of the things I'm passionate about chasing after is deep hunger for Jesus. Yeah. So I find mm. when I'm worshipping, yeah. I still find myself bawling my eyes out in the car, screaming at the top of my lungs at church, getting overly excited because God, the great I am is moving in this place. And... I think um, one of the ways you maintain hunger is going back to what we started on, this yeah. vision of Jesus. That that's what I love about you know closer than a brother and yet totally other. And as I've you know I've, I've never run out of studying more and sort of mm. learning more about him. So I, I think in some ways going back to the original point of getting a bigger vision of Jesus that only intensifies the hunger. And I think when you someone once said, "How do you make other people hungry? You eat in front of them." So if it's worship leaders, if we can learn to eat in front of people, yeah. hopefully that's attractive and compelling. And that's how you, I guess, the dream is you set a culture of a worshipping church rather than, because yeah. it's easy and I've seen this, you can spoon fed people, right, all get your hands in the air yeah. and you get yeah. you get the photo for Instagram. Wow, yeah. what a worshipping culture church. No, yeah. it's just clever um, Good leading from the front, <laughs> yeah. you know. And and so I think some of those things are really important as leaders of worship and as worship teams. We're really thinking about, and, and, that, and that's right. And because worship is is the key place where our hearts get set on fire, don't yeah. they? You know, because because yeah. it's not just an intellectual thing. It, you know, relationship with Jesus, religion can be an intellectual thing, but relationship with the living God yeah. is everything you are. And that's why worship is such a battleground, yeah. and, and music's been such a battleground in the church for the last two thousand years, mm. because musical worship is a key key gift from God to, to set our hearts on fire, mm. to give us that greater vision um, that is beyond just an intellectual ascent to something. Oh yeah, mm. I agree with that. But yeah. is a is an Emmaus road, heart on fire, you know, complete transformation experience yeah. of there's a real, alive, all-consuming fire of a God mm. who loves me so much that he sent his son to be so close to experience everything I've experienced and yeah. die on the cross for me. And that just implodes within yourself and expands your own vision of life and what it's about. Here's a song feature of the month, Hosanna. We're loving this song. Nick Herbert and a bunch of guys uh, were a part of writing this song and The Belonging Co. have put out this amazing version, Carrie Joe bleeding it. Check it out.
So as I said, we've been loving this song, been leading it loads at church. Uh, and Nick, you're a part of writing it. Tell us a bit about how the song came about. How did it all work? Well, the song actually started in um, my writing room just up the road here. And I started messing around with that phrase again, Hosanna. Uh, and, and it just felt like it was coming alive to me. I know there are so many songs that have been written with that title. Mm. But something about it just felt, I really want to write a song around this. And I started writing the chorus. And then the next week, I flew out to Reading uh, uh, to be uh, do a writing re- retreat there with Ben Cantillon and some of the writers from Bethel. And I got a chance just to spend uh, with Ben Cantle and we just worked on this chorus and we kind of, he, he got it. He, he does what Ben does brilliantly, yeah. which is he made it, you know, he took it to a next level. And then we presented it to um, Stephanie Gretzinger the yeah. following day and she loved the chorus and, and we were really feeling something special on it. And then we just started to flesh out the verses and look at that whole idea of the humble king, mm. you know, the, 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 the amazing depths that Jesus went to mm. on the cross just so then we could respond with that hosanna in the highest, you know. Uh, and it's been a really special song to write and I think we did it in about an afternoon. Amazing. Recorded a demo. Um and, and it felt really, uh, really special. It's been amazing to see it being working on both sides of the pond, you know, yeah, <laughs> over yeah. in the belonging, yeah. an amazing church there. And also when we've been doing it here and to the way it connects and something about the bridge, you know, just yeah. the way that unfolds, just felt natural at that point mm. in the song to say, blessed is he given the biblical story mm. and then to come back with that chorus again. So that's how it kind of unfolded. That's great. And obviously you mentioned, you know, with Ben, who's now in Nashville and Steph as well, who's in Nashville as well. How did you, you know, you're, you're writing back and forth. You said an afternoon, it came together amazing, but there were probably a bit more, a few more tweaks right after that. How did you get the song over the line? You know, any songwriters out there listening, thinking, oh, you know, I've got all these unfinished ideas and trying to finish them off. How did you kind of nail the song in the end? Well, actually, what happened with that one is we pretty much did have it finished on the day. It was all completed. Um, which does make it a lot easier mm. when you do sort of leave after that songwriting moment. And I would really encourage that. It's not always possible, but where you can try and finish it in the moment. And that feels right to do so. Obviously, you don't want to force or push an idea um, that's not quite ready. But um, it just came together. But then it wasn't until a year later that it actually landed on an album. Mm. So I think that's an important point as well, is that just because you've written a song, it doesn't mean to say it's going to, um, come out or be released to the church the following week. Sometimes you've got to sit on these things in the right moment and find the right person who's maybe going to carry the song in the right time. Um, and and sometimes that feels like such a mystery how mm. that whole process unfolds. Um, but it does feel like it landed in the right way at the right yeah. time. I mean, when you're really excited about a song and you've written it and like that, when it's finished pretty much in the moment, the inclination is, I want to play this the next Sunday, let's go. And sometimes you just got to sit back a bit and just allow it to dwell and make sure you have actually finished it. Yeah. And then this song, you've used this phrase, Hosanna, which as you said, you know, we, we all know it. there's been lots of songs. So again, just interested, what would you say to um, those of us who are writing songs for the church and we pick up on a word or a phrase that we know very well, but you guys have, have somehow been able to make this song feel like it's bringing something new. There's new revelation that feels fresh. What would you say to a songwriter as a great way of kind of unpacking an old phrase or, you know? I would say don't be afraid to go for the major themes of the Christian faith and the major phrases once again, but hear what the Spirit of God's saying to you with that phrase Mm. is key. Um, I think the danger way more for songwriters and sort of work with songwriters is this thing where, um, you know, you might count yourself out from looking at a particular phrase or a particular moment because you feel like someone else has written that song already. Uh, And actually, I would encourage you not to do that. I'd say, what do you really feel the Spirit's saying, even on something that's been done before? I mean, it's funny, since writing Hosanna, I've then sort of had, you know, we've had to register the song and I've realised how many sort of Hosannas are out there. And I think if I'd been aware of that beforehand... I'm not sure. I've, I've known one or two that have, you know, risen and we sing. Yeah. But I wonder if that might have put me off a bit more. I don't know. So it's yeah. good as well to keep this healthy balance of being aware of what's out there, mm. but also having a slight naivety, naivety around what is mm. there as well and allowing yourself to be free in that way. Brilliant. Well, we're loving this song, what it does in the room. It releases worship. Just I love the first line, Humble King, kind of sets you on this footing of adoration and worship. So I encourage you guys to check it out. 
Hey, well, here's our guest interview. I managed to catch up with Julian Adams, who's a brilliant guy, amazing um, prophet, um, gets worship, loves it. What's incredible is he knew he was going to do the podcast before we even asked him, didn't he? He did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a joke. For those those that didn't get that. Anyway, here we go. Here's Julian. Julian, it's great to be chatting with you. And... um, just for the for the record, you've been, I mean, hugely influential, you know, for me personally, um, you know, you've spoken into my life and and Anna's as well, my wife, and you've been a joy to get to know, you know, known you, well, yeah, a couple of years probably now. And um, just every time, you know, we connect and interact, just always left feeling more in love with Jesus and more connected to the spirit of God. And we love you and um, yeah, grateful for, for the gift that we, you know, totally see on your life as well as, as prophetic and excited to talk more about that with you. It's great to be chatting with you, Luke. I've got loads of questions and um Obviously, they're, they're mainly around the prophetic and linked to worship as well. And so I'm going to dive straight in because I want to maximize the time with you. Firstly, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what you see happening in worship. Um, you know, different places you've been to, different churches, denominations. What are you seeing God do in worship uh, around the place? You know, I think um, I've been around for a while now and have seen a number of moves of God in my lifetime. I've grown up in church. Um, and been through the season of incredible outpouring in uh, the 80s as renewal began to hit um, and just seeing worship signs being birthed out of the vineyard movement, particularly through, vineyard, uh, through John Wimber. Um, they were just very full of intimacy and incredible grace. And then through the Toronto blessing and seeing God do some amazing thing in that season of 94 where there were just great themes of the Spirit of God and Father Heart of God, which is just incredible. Um, and then through um, some of my favorite memories as a young uh, teenager through the kind of um, outpouring of God that was happening through people like Martin Smith and Matt Redman, um, just writing fresh songs that were carrying something, then the Hillsong dies, just big, loud, victorious songs. And uh, it's been encouraging to see how God in each season has been restoring particular truths that were needed for that generation or Mm -hmm. for that season prophetically. Um, And I feel like God is doing something like that again Mm -hmm. um, in that there is a fresh song that's been released. When the Bible talks about a new song, it really is talking about a prophetic song. It's about um, recognizing the season that's to come and the psalmist would sing a new song in order to proclaim that season. It wasn't just about new technology or new sounds or even um, an innovative fresh riff. It's not, it's not about that. It's about proclaiming a season that's to come to prepare yeah. the people of God. And I feel like um, the, the season that we're in and that I'm seeing all over the world is um, like there's a dual aspect to it. I feel like the first aspect is this incredible sense of coming back to what it's all about, stripping it down to um, we want the presence of God now. We don't, we don't just want um, big songs that are empty of dynamic connection. Yeah. And I think this millennial generation is looking for authenticity in what they sing and how they experience that and in the worship that they bring. Um, so I think there's this dynamic of God stripping something down in our worship in the phrases that we're using around encountering his presence together with this call for revival, mm. together with the sense of awakening again, together with the sense of God to do it again. And I think... Um, you know, those songs are, are important because they awaken something in our hearts for what God's doing in this generation. I feel like the, those are the two things that I'm seeing, this kind of intimacy with Jesus' son and then this prayer for revival. And I think across the world, you're seeing these two dynamics of worship and prayer, which is so biblical and so right to be together, yeah. um, coming together in a real experiential way as part of our church um, worship journey. On a, on a Sunday morning or whenever you meet, um, that there's a journey that's happening that carry both elements. Yeah. And I think that is, that's, a, that, that's the key thing that's about to break open 
in the world today is the sense of intimacy and revival coming together. Mm. Yeah. I mean, picking up from that, you know, because there's been so much um, talk and I, I would say it's become way more popular to push into spontaneous, prophetic, and, and those two terms are kind of bandied around a lot. <clears throat> um, a lot of the time in the same breath, you know, in the same vein. And um, I would just be so interested to hear what, how you would define prophetic worship. You know, that, is that different to spontaneous worship? What do you see as prophetic worship? So, yeah, I, I would... Um, oh, you're going to get me on my little high horse now. <laughs> I, I think musicality is not prophetic um, in that I think you need talent to be musical and to be able to fill in, you know, the gaps between one song and another. I think being led in your musicality is prophetic. Mm. And I, I think that requires an intimacy on the part of the leader and intimacy with Jesus on the part of the person who's playing the instrument. And what makes it prophetic is the fusing of Holy Spirit-led moments. Mm. Um, that's not to say that rehearsed moments aren't Holy Spirit-led, because um, I think that skillful playing is a biblical requirement. Um, and it was certainly the heart of David. He yeah. it's like, teach me how to play skillfully. I don't just want to, um, you know, be slapdash, I want to carry something skillful in the way that I worship God. But I think that being led in the moment requires a Holy Spirit sensitivity. And that most often, when, particularly when you read 1 Corinthians 14, and we get that incredible picture of what church should look like, you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would often talk about it being a sense of a party or being at like a pub where one person jumps up and does something, another person sings a sign, another person... And, and within that, there's the sense of the dancing hand of God that's moving mm -hmm. upon people. And, and so, yes, I think there is a, a sense of structure, but there's this definite sense of spontaneity that's happening in that moment. And I think that's the heart of the prophetic, is that there carries a spontaneous moment where skill and being led by the Spirit meet to bring something um, that that reframes who God is and our vision of him in that moment that ultimately leads to greater glorification of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think that prophetic declaration, prophetic songs are not just songs to God. They are songs uh, that speak on behalf of God over a generation. And the Bible says in, in Hebrews, I think it is in chapter 1, it talks about Jesus being in the midst of the congregation, not being ashamed to be worshipping with his brethren and singing songs in that context. And mm. I think it's really important that we understand that there's a song that the Father, there's a song that the Spirit, there's a song that Jesus wants to sing over us. Mm. Um, and that very often when someone under the inspiration of the Spirit releases prophecy through song, prophecy means to reveal the heart of God and to bring into um, clarity God's perspective about someone's situation or church's context. And when we do that, what happens is we get to encounter a facet of God that makes the um, immediacy of his presence felt in a dramatic way. Yeah. Um, and I think that we all know what it's like when you're worship leading. You, you do the first three songs, and then there's a moment when something shifts, and you know God's just suddenly showed up in a way that he hadn't before. And I think that prophetic worship is then clicking into that moment and going, okay, God, where are you leading? And following the fingerprints of God and then simply declaring that through song yeah. or through playing skillfully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, and I think those Selah moments, those moments of encounter, we often talk about shifting atmospheres, and sometimes we can talk about that in a disconnected, ethereal way. Actually, when that atmosphere then shifts, suddenly it's an opportunity for the miraculous. Suddenly there's an opportunity for healing, for salvation, for people to be filled with the Spirit in those moments as they see God being declared in a prophetic way and his heart being revealed. So that's what I would think. It's a very long answer to what I would think is prophetic worship. I do not think it's just simply playing a wonderful riff between two songs while yeah. we wait to, to, you know, 
change gears so we can get to the next song. That's not what it is. <laughs> yeah. It is about uh, figuring out where God's hand is moving and moving with that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, um, off the back of that, you know, someone listening to this, you know, we're, we're keen to equip practically as well worship leaders who want to grow in these things. You know, if you were speaking to a worship leader that was like, yeah, I want to grow in the prophetic. I want to stretch in that. I want to see more of God move. And I want to tap into some of those songs that speak of God's heart over a generation. <clears throat> what would, what would you say are easy steps that someone can begin to take? Or, or what have you seen where it's been done well, where you've gone, Oh yeah. Okay. I've seen them do that, which, you know, just helps grow in this. Yeah. I, I think, um, Firstly, you know, obviously everything that happens on stage must first happen personally behind and off stage. Yeah. Um, so I think developing your, your senses prophetically is really important personally. Learning to grow in the prophetic, learning to step out in the prophetic, learning to take risks off stage always helps you take risks on stage. Yeah, um, and so I think that's the important thing. It's just how do I get more of God in me? How do I get to hear his voice clearly? I think that the best place to prophesy from is scripture. Mm-hmm. And so getting refrains and words and phrases from scripture that settle in your heart, that become revelation as where they become life to you is the best place that you'll prophesy from. Um, we always prophesy from the base of revelation that we have anyway. Yeah. And the Bible is the highest form of prophecy. So I'm like, get the Bible into you. I, I think that, you know, if I could say this and be very cheeky, I think that there is a trend to reduce phrases of worship or moments of worship to pop psychology rather than to scripture. Mm. And so you, you're better than you could ever think. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. But we need scripture. We need life in there. We need, we need something that orientates our mind because worship is always for God. Yeah. And it orientates our mind to him and what he looks like um, and who he is. I mean, I think secondly, I, I often have made a practice when I'm working in local church to get worship teams together to worship just with words and no musical instruments as a team. Mm. Because the cry of their heart is seen in a way that is uh, not always seen because of the um, the comfort zone factor of being behind an instrument or mm. or knowing how to gel with a team. There's something that happens when no matter how good or bad vocals are, and I certainly don't have a great vocal. Um, <laughs> when you when you connect in that moment and you're hearing people uh, sing songs that unlock imagination toward God, that sing songs that unlock emotions and affection from the depth of their soul, and you hear in those words, often in those moments, prophetic refrains come out, yeah. and prophetic themes come out, and prophetic revelation comes out, and mm. then begins to shape the community of your worship team, so that when they get up on stage, some of that has been practiced, some of that has been explored, some of that has been defined because of the way they do practice. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if, you know, I've been in big church, so I get some of the dynamic of we need to get the job done, but I do wonder if uh, we, we spend more time as worship teams worshiping rather than practicing. Mm. Um, if there would be a shift in terms of what our practice thing looks like and what our unstage thing looks like. Yeah. And I think that's a protocol value thing that many of us have to work on because everyone's busy, everyone's doing stuff. But the problem with the prophetic, well, let me say this, the challenge of the prophetic rather than the problem is that you can't shortcut intimacy. Yeah, that's great, yeah. And you can't shortcut that personally and you can't shortcut that in your worship teams. And people get what you carry. Yeah. yeah, you can tell people you've got chicken pots, but if you've got measles, that's what they're going to get. <laughs> what you carry is what you get. Um, and so no matter what you put up front, uh, people will get what your team carries. And so you have to make space for prophetic moments off stage before you do that on stage. That's really good. <clears throat> kind of links to um, 
kind of sub question off that we were talking before we hit record often the best um you know points of conversation but i thought we'd we'd um borrow one of those into this which is um we were talking a little bit about atmospheres that we can be in where we feel very comfortable with the prophetic um kind of versus that whole well the, the scripture you know prophets not welcome their own village and sometimes you feel more comfortable stretching um, away from home where perhaps you've been you know, asked to come in and speak or uh, been asked to come in and lead worship. What would you say, again, I'm thinking about worship leaders, worship teams, where we're trying to grow in the prophetic in our home, in our home church, in our community, where perhaps you know, we're growing as a community and we want to, to stretch, but you feel that tension where maybe the atmosphere for the prophetic hasn't yet been established or, you know, there's a strong sense in which, wow, we're all moving here in the prophetic. What would you say to, to anyone in that kind of dynamic? So, I, I mean, that that is a ministry philosophy question, which is tricky to answer. So I think in many senses, worship teams are submitted to a leadership team who lead in the church. And yeah. if your leadership is not fully convinced of the prophetic, it, it's going to be super tricky in that you'll only be able to go as far as your leadership team will partner with you. Having said that, I think that the key way is to always help instruct and teach. Um, I think that part of the worship leader's job is to instruct people how to worship. Mm. Um, yeah, that's very clear in terms of uh, scriptural um, dynamic, in terms of David wasn't just worship leading, he was helping people come into an experience of worship so that their lifestyle reflected what worship yes. should look like. He instructed people on worship. Yeah. He, in many ways, he commanded people in worship. So, you know, praise the Lord is a command, not a charismatic phrase. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there is a dynamic that you get to instruct and get to set that. I think our words always create realities. And so we need to find words that communicate how we hear from God so that when we do lead worship and when we do lead into the prophetic, our congregation is coming with us. Yes. Um, um, I think that teaching into the prophetic um, as part of the life cycle of your church is really important. Yeah. Modeling that is really important. And then I think this is, uh, this is one thing that we don't really like is we have to be prepared for mess. Mm. But uh, very often, particularly in our Sunday context, we are afraid of mess because we think the unbeliever won't like that. I want to suggest to you that unbelievers are coming to church because they are already open to the gospel mm. generally mm. and that they're looking for authenticity not not um a veneer of we've got it all together yeah and i think being able to rectify messes being able to go oh, well that that didn't quite work being able to evaluate moments in the prophetic or we'll look the prophetic expectation mm. and taking your congregation or your church on a journey with you in that saying hey you know, last Sunday we wrote a prophetic song. It didn't really go great, but, you know, we're trying. We're going for this. And mm. just being open to pastorally and um, uh, reflectively deal with the mess and some of the outcome of it. Um, yeah. I think that it's important, again, to do is to practice this prophetic dynamic privately because then when you do get to Sunday, it's a little bit easier um, to take the risk because you, you've got something in your arsenal, as it were, mm. um, around the prophetic you you've made some you've got some victories you've got some uh, ways of doing things just, just um, on that yeah. how how would you um again someone tr trying to grow in this how how would you kind of just stop before you give a prophetic word and, and just test it like what would your what would the kind of um little you know checkpoints be for you before you share a word so i think i think it's very simple for me uh, the, the biggest one is is this work going to make people fall more in love with Jesus? Yeah. Secondly, does it submit to the scrutiny, authority, and um, experience of Scripture? Um, those are two very simple dynamics. Yeah. Thirdly, is it appropriate? Is this a good time to bring this word? 
And, yeah. and again, that might mean you're teaming some things, you know, working through some things with people and you're getting evaluation around it. Um, but ultimately, the prophetic is always judged retrospectively. Mm -hmm. um, you can't judge the, the prophetic prospectively. So in other words, you have to weigh the word, which means there's a possibility for that word to be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, we don't often like that in the prophetic because we think we've got to get right. I call it the paralysis of analysis. We analyze, overanalyze everything before we bring anything. Yeah. And yeah. all that does is paralyze us. Mm. Um, and I think that ultimately, when you're bringing a prophetic word that covers those three things, it's just going to bless people and make people fall more in love with Jesus. Just to stand up to the scrutiny, experience, and authority of Scripture. And um, it's just, it's just a, a, an appropriate time to bring this mm. word. Um, when those three things kind of line up, generally, you're not going to go wrong. Yeah, that's really good. And I think that when one of the big things I often tell church leaders more importantly, as well as worship leaders, is the prophetic is an invitation to encounter. Mm. In other words, there has to be a response, not just simply bringing something and then going, great, that was a great word, goodbye. Um, that, that doesn't do anything. You want to say, guys, if we agree with this, we need to respond. How can we respond? Yeah. What do we need to do? And that is the ebb and flow of worship. It mm. seems to me that worship... Um, both in certainly in the Psalms as well as in um, the New Testament, carried the sense of ebb and flow mm. and this dance that was happening. Um, and I think it's okay to go with that. And our worship can reflect that mm. in, in um, our Sundays and where, where, whichever context of worship. Yeah, really good. Just off the back of the, the testing thing, I guess then, you know, on the, um, the back end of it, um, how do you, how do we keep accountable in the prophetic? Like what, you know, what things should we kind of just make sure and check, um, as people are stretching? Cause you know, you take your risk and all that, like it's important, I guess, to, to know that you're covered. Um, what would you say to the accountability question? Um, I think the accountability question is one of, of, of history with God. I think you want mm -hmm. to develop your own history with God. Yeah. Okay. Um, as you grow in the prophetic, you, you want to have some good markers of how hey, I got it right. Um, I think that accountability does not look like judgment. Yeah. And so you know, accountability is an opportunity to say, hey, that was really great, but I feel like this emphasis led us away from the heart of the prophetic and mm. dissecting the word and just weighing it. And actually that requires a high level of trust and family and your value is not up for grab, however, how you brought this prophetic word is, so we can do it better every time. Um, yeah. And I think in all of that, kingdom family looks like being able to talk some of these things through without ever feeling like my worth is a question. Yeah. Um, and I brought some, some really bad words over people. I don't walk away thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not prophetic, I'm the worst prophetic person ever, I walk away going, I'm still God's favorite and I messed up, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, and I think that dynamic's really important. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out if there's anything else I want to say. I think um, ultimately when you're bringing the prophetic, you, the goal of the prophetic is not accuracy. The goal of the prophetic is love. Mm, good, and yeah. that's really important for us to remember. Like, I, I'm, there, there's a real kind of move in the church today to get high levels of words of knowledge and get people's birth dates and numbers and names. and All of those things are great and right, and I think we should pursue them. But that's not the goal of the prophetic. The goal of the prophetic, the Bible says, is love. In fact, that's mm -hmm. the goal of all of the gifts of the Spirit. They're extending love. And, so, and, and love is not a fuzzy, warm feeling. It's a person. We want to connect people to love. And I think that when we do that in the prophetic, it's almost very hard to mess it up. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, That's for me, the simplicity of accountability is in family, chat about it, talk it through, how can we do it better? Mm. Um, really good. That's so helpful. A um, couple of quick um, questions to end. Um, it's been so good, Jean. Um, a bit more on 
worship. What do you, what's your sense for what 2020 um, will hold? Here we are in 2020. Um, what, what do you think this year is going to hold in terms of worship? Um, I think God's going to fuse three strands of expressions in the body of Christ in worship. I feel like God is going to fuse um, what I call the revival or reformation strand, um, which really carries the big themes of heaven coming to earth, the big themes of changing the world, the big thing, themes of I want to be a history maker, those kinds of big like God's called us for something. Yeah. I think God's going to pull on some of the um, mystical ancient streams around intimacy and oneness and who we are in Christ. Some of what Vineyard so beautifully brought. And I think the third thing that God's going to do is actually pull on the mercy and justice streams. Mm. And it's the one thing that I think has been left out of church for a long while. And the, the, the understanding of what it means for the sinner, for the guilty, for the oppressor and the oppressed to come and find mercy and grace, mm. uh, to come and find salvation. Like, I think that the goal of worship should so magnify Jesus that men are drawn to him. And I think there is going to be a phenomenal aspect. I, I know that whenever we think of mercy and justice, we think of it in terms of good works. And, you know, you know people in, in slavery going free, all of that's 100%. But the ultimate expression of mercy and justice is salvation. Yeah. And I, we've just seen one of the last great heroes of evangelism pass away and be promoted to glory. Yeah. And I think this next year is going to usher in a dynamic of evangelistic worship mm. that people will literally encounter Jesus. We must always remember we're not introducing people to good news. We're introducing people to a person. Mm. And the good news is the way we do that. Mm. Um, and so I think there's going to be a dynamic of worship so profoundly imaginative and glorious. It's what's happening with Kanye West. It's what's happening in, in Hollywood at the moment, it's going to be so imaginative and profoundly glorious that it's going to gather those three streams and actually lead people to Jesus in this next year. Amazing. And there's going to be a beautiful dynamic of seeing people get saved in our meetings pre-preach, pre-gospel presentation. Come on. I mean, that, that was going to be one of my um, questions next, which, you know, what's the most prophetic thing that you're seeing happening outside the church in, in culture, you know, in the mainstream? And, you touched on it there. I mean, is that you, you just see them as completely linked? Yeah, totally. I think that um, the only thing that is separate from God, the only thing that is secular to God is sin. Everything else is joined to him and all things are becoming his. Mm. And I think that one of the biggest shaking that's happening at the moment is in the entertainment industry. And I, I, I feel that the church might be behind on this hmm. in that the entertainment industry is looking for something authentic. You look at the movies that are coming out, you look at the songs that are coming out, you look at what's happening both in, you know, the kind of Kanye West becoming a Christian thing as well as um, movie, go, uh, movie makers who are really trying to engage with an authentic message. It's not just trite. It's not just something out there. there there's, there's depth to it. I think that God is wanting to harness an authentic, genuine, vulnerable expression of worship mm. um, prophetically. And I think that's what's happening in the world. And sometimes the sons of the world are wiser than the sons of the church. And we miss out because we lag behind. because We're so used to holding on to what's familiar. The mm. thing about asking God for a new move of the spirit is that it has to be new. Mm. It means that the reference point of the old did not set up the parameters for the new. And I think that you have to let go of something. I feel like that's what God's doing in the church is helping them let go of what we've seen as historical revivals, what we've seen as historical outpourings in order to make room for the new. And part of that means there is going to be a restoration of all things, including spaces that traditionally aren't in church. And the crossover is going to look very different. Mm. It, and and I think the church is still wanting to put on concepts when the world is looking for something authentic mm. um, and That's real. Great. And I think I think God's inviting us into that space so we can lead that. 
So good. And um, final question kind of following on from that is, <clears throat> you know, for um, songwriters listening to this, um, what are the songs that you think we need to be writing, singing and, and writing um, this year in terms of responding to that, you know, what we see God, God doing and what we want to push into? You know, I think that the incredible responsibility of songwriters is to reframe imagination for a generation. And my greatest prayer in the church is that we start to find words and language that aren't necessarily um, religious, mm. but help unlock imagination for people. Um, so I, I love the fact that God is the Lion of Judah. Um, I really do. But I think there are some... There might be some language, more language that God is wanting to unlock for us to to reimagine who he is in a biblical, connected way. But that moves us past the predictability of phraseology that we're so used to, Mm. to connecting with something very powerful. I think, you know, Walter Brueggemann, who's an amazing um, theologian and, and writer, particularly around prophetic imagination, one of the big things that he argues for is that the prophets have a responsibility to help reimagine and reframe God's preferred future. Mm. And I feel like that's true for songwriters too. I think that when it comes to worship songs, I'm like, please write songs again that speak to Jesus. Um, I understand that all worship sets are a journey, but I, I think there is a dynamic that's lacking around songs that just help me come and see him, help me connect with him. Um, and I think in terms of songwriters are writing worship songs that are impacting society. Um, again, let's find imagery that connect to um, make that connects to culture, but redirects to the glory of God yeah. um, and to an encounter with Him. Um, and I know that's quite um, vague in many ways, but I think that God is wanting to harness imagination again. And unlock that. We need we need C.S. Lewis's. We need uh, Jared Tolkien to again reshape the spiritual landscape for people unwittingly almost through imagination. Mm. Um, and that that would be my prayer for in the church and outside of the church. Amazing, Julian. Thanks so much. Cool. Amazing, so helpful, Great. and um, just cheeky plug. Julian's not asked me to do this, but I feel I'd like to. Um, a book, one book to press into that actually Julian's written. Um, this was, I love this book actually. It's a few years old, but Kiss of the Father, um, Rediscovering Personal Relationship with the Holy Spirit. Really like such a good, um, engaging book uh, to, you know, dig a bit deeper in your relationship with the Holy Spirit if that's something you want to push into. Um, I love that, Julian. I hope there's more books to come. I'm sure there are. There is one. There's a sneaky one coming out soon. Thank you so much, Luke, for having me on the show. Oh, you're awesome. Thanks, Julian. Brilliant. Love you, love. Cheers. Okay, let's take it to the bridge. One of the things that I've heard used in the songwriting community is this idea of the washing machine effect when it comes to songwriting. And I love this. I think there's a lot of truth in this that... If you just put one item into the washing machine, um, you're only going to get one item out. But if you put quite a few things in there, then you don't know what's going to come out. It's going to be a jumble of stuff. Um, you don't know what colour the clothing is going to be, you know, if something's dyed. And and I think um, with songwriting, it's a little bit like that. If you just have one idea uh, and you just throw that in at the start, or maybe one idea of a sound or production where a song's going to go, then you're probably just going to get one thing out. But I think some of the best songwriting experiences and, and something we can really learn to grow in is to listen widely and broadly and think about what's going on out there. And, and maybe thinking like, oh, I love the fragility of that song there, but I want the beat and the kind of energy of that song there and start to fuse those things combine them together and you come out with something that's new Uh, and don't just stay with one thing you know often that really doesn't achieve what we want it to achieve when you think about lyrics as well I'd encourage you 
if you're thinking maybe about the theme, let's imagine the idea is the song is all about singing it loud. So you're going to sing something really, really loud. Well, if that's your only idea, what tends to happen with a song like that or what can happen is that the song then just becomes about celebrating the fact you're singing something loudly. So what's the other idea that you can throw in the washing machine? Is it that we're singing loudly because God is near and he's with us? So then you have another narrative coming alongside that. Or are we singing loudly? And we see this in a great song like Raise a Hallelujah where we're singing loudly because it's bringing triumph over the enemies and the darkness. And there's a really strong theme alongside the idea of raising a hallelujah. So... I want to encourage you, if you've got a strong idea, take another look. Do you need to bring something else into the mixer, into the washing machine, so that you get something completely new out at the other end? So that's it for this month's episode of the Worship Central podcast. Make sure you subscribe or leave a review. um, And we'd love to hear your questions, comments. Send them to podcast at worshipcentral.org. See you next time.